Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fiona Lowenstein is in her Manhattan apartment when she contracts COVID-19. I often say that I feel like the virus like came straight for me. It's March 10, 2020, just as more cases of a novel coronavirus are starting to pop in New York City. On this night, Fiona's friend Sabrina is over to discuss some work. The two are organisers of a queer feminist collective that holds events in New York City. It's called Body Politic. And uh, we were sitting there and we were like, what's going on with this whole virus thing? And she got an email from her work saying that she didn't have to come in the next day, that they were going to start, you know, take a few days off. Midway through the evening, Sabrina turns pale and suddenly doesn't feel well. We both kind of looked at each other like, is it? Could it? You know, you don't even want to speak it out loud. And of course, at that point, there was, I think, maybe one case of community spread confirmed in New York City, so it really didn't seem very likely. Um, but just in case, we were like, Let, you should go home right away, go home, you know, to, to sleep it off. And I, you know, did a light, maybe, cleaning of my apartment. Three days later, Fiona starts feeling unwell. When the first symptoms hit, it was it was a Friday night, and um, it felt very bizarre. I, I could tell right away that I had a fever and a headache. Of course, my mind went to, could this be COVID? And then, of course, your mind also goes to the worst case scenario. This is a novel virus. It's a deadly virus. You know, it it, it seems very scary. What could happen here? But if you're young and otherwise healthy, you really don't have anything to worry about. You should be able to ride it out at home like a common flu. At least, that's what Fiona was hearing. When she wakes up the next morning on Saturday, she has a cough. And by Sunday, it's worse. I felt very nauseous and and I vomited. I remember I vomited once, but ultimately I just felt like I couldn't catch my breath. And I kept kind of, you know, uh, wheezing and and just like feeling like I couldn't get enough oxygen. But it wasn't a feeling I'd had before, so I was confused by it. Um, And then the whole next day, that feeling got worse and worse. Fiona talks to a doctor who says she must go to the emergency room. Fiona's only in the hospital for two nights. But when she gets back to her apartment, she notices something is different. On the night I came home from the hospital, all I wanted to do was sleep. And I wanted to set up my room to make it, you know, nice for me to sleep. And so I I took out some lavender essential oil and I unscrewed the top and I didn't smell anything. I actually thought someone had replaced the, the essential oil with water at first. I was like, I guess maybe I can't smell, but we're not going to worry about that right now. A few days later, Fiona is on the phone with her friend Sabrina, who asks her a question. And she said to me, have you lost your sense of smell? 
And I said, yes, have you? And she said, yep. And I thought it was maybe a separate like seasonal allergy or something like that. So we were having this back and forth about loss of smell. Now we know it's a COVID symptom. At the time, it really wasn't being talked about. Loss of smell, high fever. Fiona had a classic case of COVID before she knew what a classic COVID case was. But there was more she didn't know. She was also about to join a special class of patients. We now know them as long haulers. At the start of the pandemic, it was presumed that if young adults like Fiona got COVID, they'd feel pretty miserable for several days and be completely recovered within three weeks. But we now know that's not always the case. The vast majority of people survive the infection, but some develop new symptoms days or weeks later, and others describe never completely recovering months or even a year after their infection. These persistent conditions represent the pandemic's second chapter. They mean we're going to be living with the ramifications of COVID and learning how to treat them for a long time. This season of Prognosis is called Breakthrough. It's a study of the legacy COVID is leaving behind. We will explore how scientists are advancing mRNA technology used in vaccines and we'll look at how we're preparing for the next pandemic. In the first four episodes, we'll be talking about what we know and don't know about long COVID. Our understanding of this emerging condition has been shaped by disparities past and present. A patient-led movement has once again raised the alarm, but this time has ensured that those with the lived experience of long COVID are recognised alongside the experts treating and studying them. I'm Jason Gale, Chief Biosecurity Correspondent and a Senior Editor at Bloomberg News. From the Prognosis Podcast, this is Breakthrough. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Business Week, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. After Fiona realizes she's lost her sense of smell, she and her friend Sabrina start looking around online for similar stories. Hints that patients are experiencing gastrointestinal upsets and other things not listed as COVID-defining symptoms by health authorities. That was what kind of made it click for both of us. And then she was doing some online sleuthing. She found a Twitter thread from somebody who had lost their sense of smell. We found an article about someone from a cruise ship who had had GI issues. And so we started to piece it together a little bit. But I think what really changed things for me was connecting with even more patients. And that happened after I wrote about my experience of being hospitalized in the New York Times. Fiona is a journalist and a TV producer. And on March 26, 2020, 
Just a couple of weeks after her infection, she writes an op-ed in the New York Times titled, I'm 26, Coronavirus Sent Me to the Hospital. And all of these COVID patients started reaching out to me on email and Instagram and Facebook. And a lot of them were young people like me. And a lot of them lived alone or lived in cities without their, their family nearby. And so they were navigating their care completely alone. And a lot of them had had more initially mild symptoms than I had. So, you know, some of them said, oh, well, my fever never got above 100, but I still have this fever two weeks later. Over the next few weeks, more and more people start contacting Fiona about their own experiences. There are similar themes in their stories. The symptoms persisted and they weren't getting better. It all seems to fly in the face of the health guidance that's out there at the time. In late March, Fiona's friend Sabrina suggests keeping everyone looped in via a group chat. And that is what gave birth eventually to the body politic COVID-19 support group. And so I was also able to say to these other people, yeah, I'm having the same issue and validate their symptoms. And that was when I began to wonder if maybe recovery from this was not as simple as the media was making it out to be. Fiona wants to get these stories out some way. So in mid-April, she publishes another piece in the New York Times. To my knowledge, it's really the first article in a mainstream publication on what we now refer to as long COVID. Readers immediately respond. And I also included a link to sign up for the support group that I had started, just because, you know, my editor was like, why not throw that in if you're mentioning the support group? And overnight, like within 24 hours of it being published, we had 2,000 people sign up to join the support Fiona says people from Seattle to London joined the group too big for Instagram, they moved the forum to WhatsApp. But then we got too big for WhatsApp, and so then we moved to Slack. I can't describe to you how constant the conversation was in that WhatsApp group in that 24 hours. It was like no one could even reply to each other because everyone was writing so constantly that the messages were coming in too fast to see it. And I was just glued to my phone, completely shocked. Fiona says more than 25,000 people have joined the group since it launched. But bringing people together in this way hasn't just been about sharing information and providing mutual support. It's also allowed members to actually lead research on long COVID. Many in the group have backgrounds in science and health. In May, they put those skills to use by creating a survey. They ask questions on everything from the nature and severity of symptoms to the impacts of long COVID on their lifestyle. Roughly 640 people reply. I think also once we saw that data and we saw it all mapped out, and once I realized this is not just a support group that I'm running and I'm helping people, there's leaders forming all over the support group and little initiatives and advocacy projects popping up right and left. I think seeing the patient-led research collaborative made me realize that that was going to happen more and more. And that was when I felt like, okay, this is, this is big. It's, it's, it's going to have an impact beyond just me and this little group. Fiona says this is one of the first compilations of long-term symptoms, and it was created by a group of volunteers. The data generates buzz. But long COVID is still not formally recognised by the medical establishment by this point. Fiona and Body Politic will have to do even more to get the medical community to take them seriously. The 
pandemic was not the first time patients have demanded the medical community recognise their condition. 40 years ago, gay men with acquired immune deficiency syndrome were being actively denied treatment because of fear, stigma and prejudice. Robert Chip Schooley was a newly minted infectious disease physician working at Massachusetts General Hospital, one of Boston's premier medical institutions, when AIDS struck in the early 1980s. He says the hospital refused to provide a certain treatment for those dying from AIDS. They didn't want to be the, the AIDS hospital in town. They had no qualms about getting the newest cardiac bypass device, but they didn't want to have the best HIV equipment because they didn't want to attract patients. Chip stepped down as Chief of Infectious Diseases at the University of California, San Diego, a few years back, but continues to consult there and is editor-in-chief of a major medical journal in the field. Chip says it was the patients and their supporters who mobilised to tackle prejudice and overturned the lack of care. The community did a good job of of trying to shame the hospitals uh, into doing what they should have done in the first place. And there was such discrimination at the time that hospitals had these crazy ideas that donors would not come if they thought that AIDS patients were there, that it would give the hospitals a bad uh, name. So a lot of the demonstrations uh, about this, I think, shamed some of the hospitals into doing the right thing. Chip says it took a while for the National Institutes of Health, which has led AIDS research globally, to realise that doing the right thing would ultimately benefit medical institutions. For a while, they wanted the research, but not the patients. And then they realized they couldn't have one without the other. And the places that were doing the research became the places that emerged as the centers of excellence in AIDS care, AIDS research, and indeed in in all of infectious diseases. So in the long run, it was the hospitals that jumped in early and the medical schools that jumped in early really profited by making the right decision. Chip says the medical system is doing a much better job with responding to the needs of long haulers. Back in the summer of 2020, Fiona and Body Politic were still trying to raise awareness of the plight of sufferers. Fiona says she drew on lessons from the AIDS movement. When HIV-AIDS first came on the scene in the US, they didn't have Slack, they didn't have Instagram. They worked with what they had, right? They were setting up hotlines to answer people's questions. And I remember reading about that and really that resonating with me, the idea that people who were not doctors were answering medical calls and giving the information that was available to them. Another similarity is that COVID hit communities a bit like HIV did, with many people falling ill around the same time. And so that creates this huge cohort that is able to mobilize together all at once. But, and I think as a result, also the pandemic was in the news, so we got a lot of media attention. So my hope is that people who are outside of these kind of health justice communities or patient-led communities are recognizing the importance of patients' voices, not just as like a curious human interest story to illustrate, you know, some essay, but also as experts on their own lived experience. And I think that's something we learned from HIV AIDS, and I hope we're learning it again here. Fiona and other long haulers had a hard time being taken seriously at the start. A big problem was getting tested. It was difficult to access one and therefore to prove that you'd had the virus. People were showing up and saying, I have these symptoms, but they were being asked if they had a COVID test and they didn't. And so they were being told that their symptoms were anxiety or cold or something else. There was also the way that the virus was being discussed and who it was affecting. At the start, people thought those most at risk were older men. 
some ways it was framed as a disease that was primarily affecting older men, right? Not long COVID, but COVID-19 itself. At the beginning of the pandemic, I remember even having a conversation with my own father and saying, I, should I be afraid of this? And him saying, no, you don't need to be scared of it. If anyone should be scared of it, it's me because I'm an old man, basically. Although many men who did get seriously ill are still suffering the effects of COVID a year or more later, the data are showing that it's women, many of whom are in their 40s, who are disproportionately affected by long COVID. Among long haulers, females outnumber males by four to one. And I think absolutely it's very easy to kind of say all these young women are making up their symptoms or it's, you know, mental health issues or they just need to get over it. And I think that probably that's something that wouldn't be said as much if this was something that was disproportionately impacting men. And I've seen some of the COVID advocates, you know, long COVID advocates will actually use the fact that long COVID has been tied to erectile dysfunction to try and get men to care about it. Another reason long haulers weren't being taken seriously initially was because their non-respiratory symptoms, things like brain fog, just weren't featuring in the medical literature. I think that's when we started to hear more and more of these stories of people being told it was in their heads or that it was something else, or even that they just couldn't be treated as a long COVID patient because they didn't have that test and the doctor didn't know how else to explain what was going on with them. Fiona knows the frustration of being dismissed by doctors. She says hives and rashes start to appear shortly after her infection in the spring. The only way to describe it at the time, I said, it's as if every skin issue I've ever had in my entire life is coming back to just say hello. She was also extremely exhausted and had gastrointestinal issues. Fiona asked her doctor if they could be linked to COVID. And every time, you know, she was like, it could be, it could not. I'm not really sure. I'll try to ask around. In June, a full three months after Fiona got COVID, she saw some improvement. I was able to start doing a very light yoga and not feeling like it was completely exhausting me. And then I started to increase the amount that I was walking, you know, and this was this was again after feeling relief and after feeling more energized. My GI symptoms went away mostly, I would say. But Fiona says her recovery during the summer only lasted so long. And then I realized that every time that I got my menstrual period, I was having what I was referring to as a mini COVID. So a lot of the symptoms of COVID were coming back. I was having the fatigue and the migraines very intensely in the exact same way I'd had them before, but I was also getting flu-like symptoms. I would have a runny nose and a sore throat. So once a month, Fiona relives her symptoms. They come rushing back. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Around this time, body politic is still not getting clear answers from the medical establishment about long COVID. Fiona finds nothing on it from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and she says clinicians still lack answers on how to help. 
As an alternative, the group hosts online conversations with people from different health-related backgrounds, like nurses and even yoga teachers, using Slack, a messaging app. And sometimes it was researchers um, or folks that were working in healthcare, but a lot of the time they just had kind of questions, what are you seeing, that sort of thing. Then Body Politic hears from a neuroscientist at Mount Sinai. He wants to participate in the conversation. Fiona says this was a huge shift. This was the first time that we actually had a healthcare professional come into the group and answer questions about an illness that, frankly, no other healthcare professional was willing to answer questions about. It was the first time that I recall seeing people in the group having a positive experience after interacting with a clinician. Fiona says it was at this point that body politic begins to gain momentum. She says there were two reasons for this. The first was that New Yorkers are starting to leave their homes more and were able to get in-person medical care. So I think that providers were, for the first time, starting to see people show up in large numbers with long COVID um, because a lot of these patients had been trying to manage their own symptoms at home during March and April and May. And by June, you know, I know just kind of from the interviews I've done with patients who got sick in the first wave in New York City, a lot of those patients were coming to terms with the fact that they hadn't gotten better and starting to seek real medical care for that. The second reason momentum is building is the amount of media attention the group is generating enough buzz that even medical institutions start to listen. One important body that was starting to pay attention was the National Institutes of Health. We became aware of the problem probably in the late spring of 2020. Walter Koroshetz is the director of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. He's also a co-director of a team that the NIH assembled to study the causes of long COVID and to figure out how to treat and prevent it. Walter says that by mid-2020, the CDC and groups in Europe had accumulated evidence that supported the data body politic had gathered two months before. Then we talked to Congress in the summer as Congress became worried by the reports that were occurring in the newspapers. We had been working on the issue throughout the summer of 2020, trying to understand it. Congress sets aside $1.15 billion over four years for the research. It's motivated in large part by the emerging data. In July 2020, the CDC publishes the results of a multi-state telephone survey of people who tested positive for COVID at least two to three weeks earlier. They showed that 35% of people were not better at three weeks. And compare that to influenza, where it would be 90% of people would be better. So we knew right from there that, that, that this is a virus that has a significant impact on longer-term recovery. And now we know that people are out six, seven months and, and haven't recovered Body politic was nimble and well-connected, and that enabled the group to gather and analyse survey data fast. In doing so, it was one step ahead of these official government organisations. Now the conversation over long COVID has changed, and researchers have started looking for answers. Fiona has found some herself, like what made a difference with her own long COVID symptoms. She says things started to turn around in March this year. I was able to get vaccinated and I had a unique experience in that the vaccine 
pretty much got rid of my menstrual issues entirely. She noticed a difference after the first shot. After I got the second one, that was when I was like, okay, time to really see what's going to happen here. Um, and the next cycle, it, it was it was much, much better. Um, I had actually, I had very severe cramps, which is a, a side effect of the vaccine that some people who menstruate have experienced. Um, but I was like jumping around. I was so excited that I was having a normal period <laughs> symptom. I was like, cramps are terrible, but at least people understand that they're associated with menstrual periods, whereas a runny nose and, you know, headaches is not something that everyone understands is affiliated with that. And after that, it was, it was, you know, much, much better. But this is a unique moment. Long COVID is a brand new disease and we're learning how it works in real time. This means it's harder to find factual information. We're still learning about the effects of COVID vaccination on long haulers and menstruation. Menstrual changes after immunisation have been reported and an editorial in the British medical journal BMJ in September said a link is plausible and should be investigated. It's an example of the kind of phenomena the pandemic is throwing up, ones we need to be open-minded about. Fiona recently published a guide to help the media report on long COVID. It includes tips on telling diverse patient stories and highlighting different manifestations. Part of what I'm trying to interrogate there is like, is health reporting in the way that we've done it before, did it work during this pandemic? And are there things that we need to reinvent or think critically about? And what do you do when there's a novel illness and the people who are supposed to be experts all the time actually have less knowledge than maybe people who have no medical expertise? This observation struck a chord with me too. I had almost blind faith in trusted health officials, but when a new disease emerges, the truth is we're all learning together. Patients, medical authorities, and the media. No one group has a monopoly on the facts. How do you weigh those two opinions and balance them or or give credibility where you need to? Um, So I, I just hope that there will be more of an engagement with patients beyond kind of this Here's the human side, very briefly, and then pulling back to the experts. I hope that we will continue to treat patients as experts. Since the summer last year, things have changed with body politic. Fiona's been given an opportunity to provide health experts with valuable insights into long COVID. We have been in regular contact with the CDC since Biden's inauguration, um, a little bit before that, but things really were able to get going then. We were meeting with them regularly to kind of fill them in on what was just going on, what we were seeing with patients. We've also provided um, feedback, um, pretty significant edits and suggestions to their clinical guidance, which they published recently, their interim clinical guidance. The group also provides feedback to health authorities in the UK. Fiona and another group member have met with the World Health Organization, the NIH, as well as other international advocates. And then I also um, recently presented to the um, POTUS uh, COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force. So that's uh, the president's health equity uh, task force on COVID-19. Body Politic was there to talk about long COVID, along with a couple of other organizations. It's a limelight Fiona is both humbled and bemused by. 
It's been sort of shocking. I was, you know, not the best science student in high school. <laughs> now people are reaching out to me. And, you know, it's 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 funny. I make that joke sometimes that like my eighth grade science teacher would be like, this person has no credibility. Between body politic and patient-led research collaborative, I feel like we're in touch with almost every researcher or clinician who is studying or treating long COVID. And that's been amazing because you get to see this kind of inside view. And then obviously they are incorporating more of the patient's perspective, which is really important. But the advocacy is hard work and a challenge to keep up, especially for long haulers. I feel like body politic has a a pretty great seat at the table right now, to be honest. I think we're all hoping that, you know, we can just continue trucking along to keep that seat because frankly, most of this work is not paid and we are people, you know, I'm, I'm not battling debilitating health issues every day, but many, many others are. I actually saw the other day, there was a conversation happening on social media just about how do you sustain this work and not burn out? And so I think that's, that's one of the, the questions right now. As debate moves to opening up economies and learning to live with COVID and people yearn for pre-COVID normalcy, Fiona says it's critical that policies acknowledge the risks of long COVID, which is a threat even for those who have been fully vaccinated. We've been at least one, if not many more steps behind throughout this whole pandemic. And so I think all of us who have dealt with this on a personal level are kind of screaming, okay, look one step ahead. Look at all the people who already have long COVID. Look at all the people who are going to get it. What are you going to do for us? Earlier this past summer, Fiona spent a weekend on Long Island. She recalls going into a grocery store wearing a face mask and the glare she received. And someone even asked us, oh, did you not get the shot? You know, and, and we're like, uh, no, we got it. We're still wearing masks. A false sense of optimism has been a hallmark of this pandemic. Epidemic peaks and troughs have brought a whiplash of panic, followed by relief that the worst is behind us. But COVID-19 is far from over. And Fiona says she's concerned how it will play out in terms of the risks for long COVID. Even when people talk about it'll eventually become, you know, a mild illness, I I hope that happens. But I also don't know what that means for COVID because many of these people who got it got an initially mild case. Right. So I think just it's hard to envision the future when no one is accounting for the present or the past, honestly. So the medical establishment finally acknowledged that long COVID is real, in large part thanks to the work of Fiona's and other patient led groups. But that only highlights a bigger challenge. What's causing it and how can you stop it? Next week on Breakthrough, doctors search for answers in the bodies of COVID victims. We set up a a 24-hour call schedule where I might hear about these cases at 2 o'clock in the morning, communicate with our amazing admissions department who would facilitate our contract funeral home going out in the middle of the night, bringing bodies here so that my team would be suited up at 9 o'clock in the morning. This episode of Prognosis Breakthrough was written and reported by me, Jason Gale. Topher Forges is our senior producer. Carl Kevin Robinson Jr. is our associate producer. Our theme music was composed and performed by Hannes Brown. Rick Shine is our editor. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. 
be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like this episode, please leave us a review. It helps others find out about the show. Thanks for listening. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.